on this uh, Pentecost Sunday, we reflect upon uh, particularly one person of the Trinity uh, that will get our attention. Uh, if you've been around church, Pentecost Sunday uh, is where kind of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, kind of takes center stage. That person of the Trinity that, that sometimes, especially us as Lutherans, sometimes we forget that he's there, uh, but he's always there. And so we reflect upon his work uh, this morning. Uh, I, I am not wearing red, so I guess that makes me a bad pastor. But if you're wearing red today, uh, among many things, I know it's Memorial Day weekend, but if you're wearing red, you are celebrating Pentecost Sunday. So good on you for following the liturgical calendar. Pentecost Sunday is red reflecting upon the Holy Spirit being poured out on those disciples in Acts chapter 2. Uh, there is a lot going on, and we will not be able to cover uh, even a, a fraction of everything that's going on in this text. Uh, you could spend uh, Sunday after Sunday just on this one event and, and dissect it and kind of reflect upon so much of the meaning. So we're not going to cover everything, but, but I want to, again, want to put before you, uh, in particular, what this shows about what the work of the Spirit does in our lives. That's what we'll focus on this morning from Acts chapter 2, what the work of the Spirit is in our lives. Now, the first thing we see is this, is that the work of the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, he fulfills and promises. He does both of these things. He fulfills and promises. Uh, many people don't know this, but Pentecost was not uh, something that Christians started. I don't know if you knew this, but, but Christians did not start Pentecost. We celebrate it uh, each year in the church calendar, but Pentecost did not begin with Christians. It actually began with God's people, the Jewish people, God's chosen people. Uh, and, and the original uh, meaning of Pentecost was, was pretty much twofold that the Jewish people celebrated. First, they celebrated uh, what was known as the Feast of the First Fruits. Uh, Pentecost falls about 50 days, exactly 50 days after the day after Passover, after kind of Easter Sunday weekend. If you ever wondered what Pentecost means, it quite literally means 50. Maybe you noticed the front part of the word pente, and maybe you've reflected upon that. Well, that sounds like Pentagon. You're right. You're learning some Greek in there, right? Uh, so it comes 50 days after Passover, and it celebrates the first fruits, kind of when the first crop was beginning to emerge in, in their Jewish calendar. And, and that time of year in the early springtime was when the first fruits would begin to spring. And so what they did at Pentecost was they took their first fruits and they gave them to the Lord. They gave them to him as an act of worship, as an act of trust, as an act of saying, God, we, we're trusting in you for the rest of the harvest, for the rest of the things that, that not only will feed us, but also like that's how they made money. And so they took their first fruits and offered them in sacrifice to the Lord on Pentecost, reflecting their trust in the Lord of saying, we have a taste, but there's more to come. Uh, secondly, though, there was the, the, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. That was the other meaning of the Jewish festivals of Pentecost, was that that was the moment, that was the day, which happened about 50 days after, oh, well, nice B, all right, all right. It happened about 50 days after the Passover. And so on Mount Sinai is where God gave the law, gave the, the Torah. Oh, my goodness. Quite literally. Okay. All right. I apologize. He just really want, doesn't want me to get this point, I guess. Uh, he gives the law, the Ten Commandments and the other commandments that God gave to his people, marking them as his people. They gave that 
from Mount Sinai. And, and that was what Pentecost celebrated, was that God had made them his people, and that he gave them his law so that they would know how to be his people, how to live as his people. And in both of these things, we see that the Spirit, by coming on that day of Pentecost, by coming and, and filling the Holy Spirit upon the disciples, we see him fulfilling and also promising. And you need to know that background to see the, the depth of that. We see it fulfilling because when God gave, gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, do you remember what was there with the presence of God signaling that God was on the mountain? You remember what two things were there? There was fire and there was wind. Fire and wind. And it was terrifying for Moses and for the rest of God's people. It was terrifying for them to see the presence of God coming down in fire and wind all around them. And they didn't go near. They, they stood back at a distance. They said, Moses, you go on up. We're, we're kind of terrified. What do you see at Pentecost with these disciples? What was above their head? Flaming tongues of fire. What was rushing around them coming down from heaven? The wind of God. You see, right there, in that Pentecost, it is showing them that, that God's spirit is being poured out because where that fire and wind is present, God's spirit is there. And here's the thing, it is not terrifying anymore. It is gracious. It is merciful. See, the disciples and those filled with the Holy Spirit, they don't run away in fear. They're emboldened. They're comforted. They're strengthened. And because they have the presence of God now come to them through the work of Jesus Christ, they do not need to be terrified. That the transcendent God, the God who created all things, the God who is above all things right now, that God, through his Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in them and comes to dwell in you. That if you're here today and you, you say, I, I believe Jesus, I trust in him, that is evidence, that is, that is the work of the Spirit in you. If you're here today saying, I, I've been baptized, then, then you have clear proof that God's spirit has been poured out on you. And you may not have fire above your head. I know we have some wind, but we don't have the mighty rushing wind that they experienced on the original Pentecost. But you have that same fire, that same wind in you. You have God's spirit in you, being gracious, merciful to you. And it reminds you that he fulfills all of his work by pouring out his spirit in you. But also it promises. The coming of the Holy Spirit, he promises. Not only fulfills what God has been doing and gives it to you, but he also promises. Uh, remember again the whole practice of first fruits. That's a very important thing to remember because they, they were taking their first fruits and it was an act of faith of saying, here's the first of them. Is it all of them? No. But here's the first of them and we're going to trust you that there's more to come that this is only a taste this is only a glimmer but there is more to come and that's important because because paul in romans chapter 8 he has this odd phrase he he's reflecting upon the state of our world and he he reflects upon the fact that this world is decaying and, and really what he's drawing upon is is really the whole story of the bible beginning at the very beginning in the book of Genesis where God made everything and it was good. Created all things to be in harmony, to be good, to have life. And yet through sin, through the rebellion of God's people, what began to come in and infect the world? But sin and death. In other words, 
the world decayed. We decay, the world decays, and we're groaning, as Paul says. But then Paul says this interesting phrase. He says that now we have the Spirit of God, which he uses this way. The Spirit of God is the first fruits as we await the future glory yet to be revealed. Do you get what he's saying? That the Spirit that's in you, it's a taste. It is amazing. It is beautiful, but it's only a taste. It's a taste of a glory far beyond what we can comprehend. But you can know that, that your life, that this world is being recreated, being renewed to perfection, to the way God has, has originally made it to be. And that's what he's doing. And you can be confident of that. Why? Because you have the spirit in you. It's a positive of God. It's the assurance of God for you to give you strength. So when you face your difficulties and you wonder, man, nothing can get better. Nothing's going to turn around. I'm decaying. This world is decaying. God's spirit is in you to remind you. This is a foretaste. This is a glimpse and he, he comforts you and reminds you there's a greater day coming. There's a glorious day coming and you have no idea other than the small glimpse of what's coming. And you grab a hold of that and it gives you confidence in the trial and difficulty. So, so that's what the Spirit does. He, he fulfills all that God has been doing, and he also promises, and he gives that to us. But also, secondly, don't miss this, but, but here's the work of the Spirit in us, is the Spirit grows fruit in us here and now. I don't know if you realize that, but you are, are God's garden, so to speak. And he grows fruit in you. He grows fruit through you to bless other people with. But, but here's where I want you to realize that the Spirit grows that fruit in us in, a, in an interesting and honestly painful way. Uh, he, he grows fruit in us, but you know where it begins? It begins with our weakness. That's where growth begins, with our own weakness. Uh, we get a glimpse of Peter, his sermon in Acts chapter 2. There's more of it as you keep reading Acts chapter 2. But we get a glimpse of his sermon in Acts chapter 2. And, and it, honestly, it, it, it's pretty harsh as you read his sermon. He, he kind of goes full out on, on what they had done to Jesus. And, and he's saying all these things about all the people around him, all the other Jewish people who saw Jesus die. And, and he's convicting them. He's speaking this harsh word to them. And it says at the end of the sermon, if you caught it, the hearers were cut to the heart. That's another way of saying that they realized that that they are weak, that they are at the end of themselves. They've been convicted by the work of the Spirit to show them that, that their sin, that their evil, led to the death of the Son of God, that they stood guilty, that, that they, are, they are totally undeserving of all the goodness from God. And it says they cut them to the heart and they ask, what do we need to do? We, we, we need to find a new way. We're at the end of ourselves. We are weak. We need help. And Peter says those amazing words. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in him. Call out to him. Turn to him, which, which is another way to say this, repent. Turn. Realize that you've led your life into a dead end, and you need a new way, and this is the new way. God has broken through, and he has made a new way for you through Jesus. But the only way you see it, the only way you walk it, is when you realize that you are weak, 
that you are unable, that left to your own devices, you get to the dead ends. And that's where it begins. And really, you read the whole Bible, and that's the story of humanity, is we're presented with forks in the road, the metaphorical fork in the road, all the way through. And if you read the story of the Bible, when we're presented with the fork in the road, are you going to choose your way or God's way? People are confronted with that decision all the time. And you know what they often choose? You read through the Bible, you know what they often choose? I'm going to go my way. I'm not going to go God's way. He's calling me this way, but I'm going to go my way. And we're no different. You know when you're presented with those decisions, with those things in your life, whether they're big or small, and you kind of know in your mind, like, okay, I'm left, there's a fork in the road. I can either go the way God is calling me to, the, the way of trust, the way of faithfulness, the way of obedience. But you know what? That, that way is difficult. What about the way I want to go? That's a lot more easy. That's a lot more comforting, at least initially. That's a lot more satisfying, it seems. And so we, we go our own way. But the Spirit of God meets you on your way and shows you that if you keep going your way, you're in a dead end. And that's where it begins, to recognize you are weak, to turn to Jesus. And that's what the Spirit does. He points you to Jesus. That's what he did for all these disciples. He pointed them to Jesus and said, he is the one who has met you on your way, and he is the way. He is the true way to believe in, to follow, even though it's hard and difficult and demanding sometimes. But he's good and gracious and, and forgiving and loving, and so we follow him. And as you do that, as you realize, in and of myself, I'm weak, and if I go my own way, I'm going to end up in a dead end. But as we lean upon Jesus and as the Spirit points us to him, you know what he produces in that? He produces fruit. Fruit like this, and, and if you've read the Bible, if you've been in church, maybe these sound familiar, but here's the fruit that is, as you continually turn to Jesus and, and follow him, here's what the Spirit creates in you. It creates things like love. Who wants love in their heart, in their life? I do. It creates joy. Who wants joy in their heart and their life? Creates peace and, peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You don't get those things by going your way. You know what you get going your way? Selfishness, self-centeredness, despair, hopelessness. That's what we get when we go our way. But when the Spirit comes to us and shows us going our way leads us nowhere good, and we recognize, I need him, I need Jesus, I need to turn to him, that's when you experience his fruit in your life. And that's what he wants to grow in you. But it's painful. You've got to admit you're weak. And you've got to really believe that. Otherwise, the fruit can't grow. I know we got some farming people here, and I'm by no means a farmer at all. You guys know that. I've got the anti-green thumb. Um, but here's the thing. When you want to take hard soil and make it good soil, like you don't just wish it to happen. There's stuff you got to do, right, to take hard soil and make it good soil for it to grow and produce. What do you got to do? You got to do things like, like till it, which I got to be honest, it's really hard on the soil, isn't it? <laughs> That's a difficult process to cut into it and break it apart. You got to till it. Then you got to put some some junk in it 
some fertilizer, right? And then what do you do? Then, then you seed it. And then water it. And then it grows. But what do you got to do first? You got to till it. It's painful. It's hard. It's admitting you're weak. But that's what the Spirit does in us. He will break you open. He will till your heart so that you receive the goodness of Jesus. So that his fruit can grow in you. But you can't bypass admitting and confronting your weakness. Lastly, though, the Spirit not only fulfills and promises or grows fruits, here's what he also uses and he does in our world, is God, his Spirit, uses the ordinary. As you read through the story and people are reacting to these disciples and they're all of a sudden talking in other languages uh, that they didn't know beforehand and, and they're doing these amazing things, they're talking about God's activity and, and all these people who come from all these different parts of the world they're hearing it in their own language, and they're like, what is going on here? And one of the questions they ask is, are these not Galileans? Which, we're not from kind of the Middle East, at least I don't know anybody here that is, and I don't know how much you know about Middle Eastern kind of culture and, and kind of views of different regions. That was like saying, aren't these just really simple people? You've heard that phrase before, right? Oh, they're just simple people. Ah, you know, they're, they're from the backwoods. They're rednecks. You know, whatever it is, whatever that thing is, that's what they're saying. Like, aren't these the Galileans? Aren't these the guys who, like, don't know how to read? And they're, they're the kind of, like, rejects of society? Aren't these those people? And it, and it shows this amazing thing that God, all throughout his work, uses people that the rest of the world looks at and is like, really? You're going to use them? You're going to use them, the the weak, the powerless, the, the not smart, the not influential, you're going to use them, but that's precisely what the Spirit of God does. Uses ordinary people. And let me just let you know, I know we like to think of ourselves as special snowflakes. We're ordinary people. I'm pretty ordinary, you're pretty ordinary. But you know who God uses? ordinary people to bring his message to bring his grace he uses those people to to further his kingdom the people on god's resume that he looks at and he's like i'm going to use them are the people that that are oftentimes ones that we look at and like ah god can't use them but that's precisely who he uses and he uses you so as i close i want to talk to two people this morning two people and two categories of people and maybe you fit into one of them I want to talk first as we, as we close to the person who concludes, who thinks to themselves, God can't use me. Maybe that's you. For whatever reason that is, you say, God can't use me because of my intellect, because of my background, because of my skills, or whatever it is, because of my life circumstance, whatever it is, God can't ever use me. And I just want you to hear this loud and clear. You're wrong. You are dead wrong. God uses regular, ordinary people. And if you're like, man, I've I got all this baggage, I've got all this stuff, read through the Bible and read through all their baggage from, from the people God uses. And find comfort in that, that God uses messed up people. Find comfort in that, that God's Spirit will use, is using you. 
And also remember what you have. You have the spirit of God in you. You have the fire, the wind of God. You have that in you. Working through you. Remember that. But I want to conclude also with with another person. And maybe you find yourself in this category where you may not say to yourself, God can't use me. But maybe you're saying to yourself, I know he'll use me. And so that's why I kind of back off. Which maybe you don't say it that way, but... But it's another way of saying we're scared. We're fearful of, if I do follow him, if I do do the the thing he wants me to do, man, it's kind of scary. It's unknown. It's out of my control. So I'm going to hold back. If that's you, I invite you to put aside your fear and remember who it is that's calling you who it is that promises to be with you, the gracious and merciful Lord who has died for you and risen for you and promises that no matter where you go, he will be with you, and that's what the Spirit does in you. It reminds you that God is with you and will always be with you. And so you can take your fear to him and take that step in following him. And for you, I want you to reflect upon the fact that that the disciples on that Pentecost Sunday, they were accused when they were doing all the things they were doing. You know what they were accused of by some onlookers? Man, they got into the the new wine. They were drunk. And it says third hour of the day, which means 9 a.m. That was Peter's defense, by the way. There's no way they could be drunk. It's only 9 a.m., guys. (laughs) That was his defense. But, But notice, they looked at them and they thought, these guys have had way too much to drink. They're they're inebriated. They've lost their minds. And, and I think that's telling because I think what that signals is not that they were drunk, but this, that they were full of this uncontainable joy. And that the out, out, average onlooker was like, you got to be beyond some stuff to be filled with that much joy. But, but they were just experiencing this spirit-filled joy that led them to this deep sense of contentment and peace and joy, and they couldn't contain it. And so to you, who's afraid, who knows God might use me, he will, but notice this, by you holding back, all you're doing is missing out on joy that will overflow in your life, that will impact the lives of the people around you, And people may look at you crazy. They may not think you're drunk, but they'll think you're crazy. And you can say, no, I'm not crazy. I see things as clearly as I've ever seen them because I see who God is and what he's done for me. Let that guide you and comfort you and lead you. Amen.